This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked Hannah Kulin what she has learned about design since working at Facebook. The power of getting feedback early and often from my team. We have a lot of design critiques and a lot of design things, and it's so many good talented people helping you bring perspective into your designing problems. So just having that in our everyday work is great. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Revision Path is looking for both staff writers and feature writers. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. You can also sign up for weekly job alerts, so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email letting you know you can apply. And if you're still looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. This episode is dedicated to the life of Kenneth D. Wiggins. Rest in peace. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, of course, I want to remind you again about our audience survey. Go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to take it, and everyone who finishes is going to be entered into a drawing to win a $100 Amazon.com gift card. The audience survey closes on April the 30th. Now let's talk about our other sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the best software out there for sending marketing emails, automated messages, and targeted campaigns. Join more than 10 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 600 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find that domain name and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're back down to 32 patrons for a combined total of $220 per month. Again, a huge thanks for everyone that has already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. Really, really does mean a lot. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month, and it's a great way to support the show on a regular basis. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with New York City-based designer and web video producer Satchel Drakes. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. 
I am Satchel Drakes. Right now I'm residing out of New York City. I am a designer and web video producer. So for design, right now, working full-time doing design stuff, freelance as well. And um, for as far as the web video producer part, I'm a YouTuber. So I run a channel that talks about game design and uh, user experience at the intersection of art and culture. There's sort of like this growing independent gaming scene that's very much interested in telling stories a little bit different than what people are used to. So, you know, sometimes I'll put together case studies about those topics, whether it's about grief or, I don't know, existential topics, whatever the case may be. And uh, it's, it's kind of over time turned into a little bit of variety between that, talking about music stuff, some vlogs on creativity, growth, productivity, work-life balance, stuff like that. That actually segues into a question that one of our, our Patreon patrons asked since you were talking about kind of your vlogs of creativity. Uh, this is from Cornelius Tool, and he's asked in a recent vlog episode, and I think it's the one that you did about creativity and the Internet. You know the one I'm talking about? Yes. So in that episode, you kind of talked about your frustration with everyone always seeking inspiration to do cool stuff instead of actually like making cool stuff or doing cool stuff. They're looking to get inspired by something so they can do it. Do you have any ideas or approaches that design or creative communities could do to foster more of that kind of get started, keep going spirit over the get inspired, get ready attitude? As far as communities overall, that can be really difficult because there's so many different creative people that sort of landed where they are either through self-taught means or just sort of like organically falling into the rhythms of making things. So there's definitely like a gradient of perspectives on productivity and by no means what I want to like tout one way above another. I know what's been helpful for me is meeting creative people who are incredibly transparent. I think that's something that I could work on a lot. I'm I'm not, but... I guess in a lot of ways I can be off put by creative people that like do excellent work, but they're very, very concerned with like auditing everything that they say and do. And you don't really get to see there's sort of like this mystique around the things that they create. Like there might be like, for example, they might have a sort of Johnny Ive effect where Johnny Ive, like he works on these really amazing design things, but you really don't know too much about him. You don't know too much about like his failures. And like, I guess from my lens, creativity and as you grow making more creative things, like a lot of a lot of the most seasoned, interesting parts come out of your failures. So for me, creative people who talk about those failures, if it's in a talk or whatever, or you know, maybe they'll post something on Instagram and in the caption they'll talk about their kind of process, that really helped me a lot. Maybe not necessarily adopting what they do verbatim as much as just understanding, I don't know how to say, like the technology behind how they, how they think about their things. It's, it's either been validating or really encouraging. So if, if to, to answer the question, if I find communities like creative communities that are transparent in that regard to be incredibly valuable for people who are inspired and want to hit the ground running with stuff. What has come out of your failures? Out of my failures, I mean, I guess like final products, <laughs> final, <laughs> final products, right? Cause you're kind of tripping your way to the finish line. Right. And you know, in a lot of regards, like done is better than perfect. Not to say that like I don't try to be like meticulous or that I don't try to round off the edges of things. But I think from a very like high level, a very general level, like my failures have on one end in my work taught me how to be better, just taught me where my weaknesses are. That way I can like seek out 
cooler or, or like better techniques or more challenging techniques for whatever it might be, whether it's design or video or animation. And then also just like character wise, just keeping me as far away from pride as possible. I don't think that's something we ever really conquer. We're always sort of like at odds with our pride, like blinding us and kind of keeping us back from things. But I think that our failures can definitely sort of remind us of the humility. It's kind of necessary to not only like interact with the creative people, but also interact with clients and, uh, mm-hmm. and have a, a better perspective when you're kind of working them to see it more as service than as like a, uh, I don't know, a burden. I got you. Okay. So speaking of, of clients, I, you know, really kind of want to talk about how you first got into design. What sort of got that spark for you to venture into this? What really got me started was, uh, oh, in high school, one of my friends, name was Alvin. He was like super cool. At that time I was like, just like a nerdy kid, like super into anime and stuff. And, um, I had gotten into Zanga. I don't know if you remember that. It was like this. I remember Zanga. Oh my gosh. It was like the yeah. worst vlogging platform ever. It didn't <laughs> last long, right? It totally didn't last super long. But like uh it was this cool blogging platform. At that point in time, like blogging was like this new thing for me. Like really the internet as this thing that you frequently check at large was kind of like a new thing to me. And mm-hmm. um he had the coolest Zanga layouts. And I would like ask him, like, hey, man, how'd you get a really cool layout? And essentially, he would go to like one of those. It was like the equivalent of Theme Forest where like they had like Zanga themes, but it was all free. It was like people making like really like weeby like anime stuff or like video game stuff or like whatever. And you could like copy and paste the CSS and the HTML into the little look and feel section and like change it to what you wanted. So I became really obsessed with that really quickly. The school that I went to was like a magnet school. So there were like classes for design, more focused classes and stuff. And that was where I got really into like vector illustration because you'd always find like you might like something, you know, like a cartoon or something. You wanted like a high resolution image for your wallpaper, but um, <laughs> you could never find one because back then, like I don't Google, we had Google images, but it didn't let you search by size, you know, and like for the right. for the images that leak, they were always so small, you know, so it was cool to be able to take the pen tool, blow up a really pixelated image and just like retrace it with the pen tool and have this like crisp, like hi-fi thing. So that in combination with like just wanting to have like the coolest Zanga layout ever and like getting into the most embarrassing, like nerdy competition of like seeing who can design the better Zanga layout that sort of like Mm -hmm. pushed me into web design and then graphic design and, I don't know. I guess finding finding a voice for that. No, that's interesting. There's a lot of people I've talked to on the show, and that's you know those sort of early platforms that allowed you to play with HTML and kind of this controlled environment are ways that a lot of people got into design, whether it was Zanga or LiveJournal, MySpace, Black Planet, GeoCities, Tripod, etc. You had these kind of enclave that allowed you to do this not in a way that was very destructive but just in a way where you could play around and kind of get your feet wet and it's interesting because the way that these platforms sort of sprung up were all around social networking but yet they also served as these little kind of breeding grounds for learning the technology that we use today heck yeah it's really cool actually i mean i mean i mean just the other day i was kind of thinking about how wild it is that it's like oh man this like weird kind of back alley platform 
has sort of blown up into this thing that it's like, all right, now people are like working it, especially like on the platforms where you can like monetize things and get like brand deals. Like it's weird to see that length. I think because I mean, I bet you can agree, like you're probably making stuff for the Internet and in that time as well. Like there was sort of like this rhythm of sharing that you kind of got mm-hmm. into and this rhythm of like this language to how you like, for lack of better words, like craft things to share with people. That uh, yeah. it's just storytelling, right? Like, even though storytelling is sort of like this bastardized word that everyone uses now, like it's like it's still, <laughs> still, at, still at its heart. Like, storytelling is storytelling. We know what it means. There's sort of like this this language of storytelling that you use that now, like when I use it, I realize it's sort of like the same thing that's evolved over time. And it's cool to see other people make livelihoods out of it. Yeah. Well, speaking of that evolution, that kind of, I guess, has evolved into what you're doing now with your YouTube channel, right? Yeah, more or less, for sure. Talk to me about kind of what was the inspiration behind, you know, starting it. For those that, that are, are listening, you have this well-known YouTube channel. It's called Satchbags Goods. And you talk about, you know, like you said before, video games, but it's in this very well-designed and, and very thoughtful way. What kind of inspired you to look into games and, and talk about them like this? So I've always enjoyed video games. It was a family activity growing up. So I was I was I was born in Trinidad and partially raised in Trinidad. And um, my nanny used to play uh, Nintendo with me all the time. And then my sister had one when we moved to the States. Um, and it was sort of always like a family activity and something that I grew up with and had seasons of obsessions over, especially as someone who like, liked to draw, like drawing Sonic the Hedgehog and all this other stuff. And that was always something that like my parents encouraged and and were totally okay with. And I guess it was just always like something that was there over time as I got older, especially as I got more responsibilities, I found myself playing games less, at least like those kind of like commercial AAA games a lot less. My interests were kind of diverted elsewhere, like through college and post-college though. Everyone played like, you know, guitar hero and smash and all the other stuff. And I guess I started getting interested in other like art forms, like super into like Eastern film and super into just like, literature and stuff like that. I was just reading books. It's not not to make it sound like this crazy thing. It's reading books. And <laughs> and like and I guess in that I found really cool intrinsic value there in a way that I didn't really find it in games. And it was when I first moved back up to the New York City area from Philadelphia. I was kind of down there. I was down in Philadelphia for 3-4 years and I moved back up here pretty much just in a season where like I was starting new and like looking for new work. And I wanted a reason to keep my chops sort of steady in Final Cut and keep it steady in Photoshop. And I had sort of discovered that people were taking the YouTube platform incredibly seriously. So like for like serialized like content talking about stuff. And I thought that was so cool. I thought the concept of working on video essays was really cool because I was super into like teaching and putting together like plans to like share different ideas. So it was nice to kind of have like this like hobbyist venue where I can do all the things that I like doing, but never really had like a focused goal for. And um, at that point in time, that was when a documentary called Indie Game the Movie came out. And it was this, it caused waves in the culture of game development and and then I think just game enthusiasts in general, because they were essentially discussing the oncoming resurgence of game developers who want to do something new, with meaningful content and meaningful stories and personal stories. And it felt like the best of both worlds for me because it had my childhood pastime mixed in with like, I guess the more like 
grown like mature themes i was kind of getting out of like movies and stuff like that and um i wanted to like talk about that you know like when you when you rip apart it's sort of like a I guess for people who really aren't into video games, what might help sort of like give them a better understanding of it is like video games sort of has like this weird, like kind of like icky, like stigma on it. Cause you usually think like people who are like locked in their basements are kind of like playing it. Like those are the kind of people who are enthusiastic about it. It's such an old conversation now cause it's so not that anymore. If you think about like a comic book, there's really nothing about the technology behind a, a comic book that makes it anything it's just panels with drawings it could technically be anything but when i when i mention comic books the first thing you think about is like two really strong dudes punching each other like really hard you know what i mean because there's sort of like these like there's like these cultural like milestones like attached to it that's never going to leave it games i think has a little bit of that as well but really the technology behind a game is its visual arts its music composition and its narrative wrapped in interactivity so it actually has the power to in a lot of ways be one of the most compelling art forms out there because you're adding your volition to a story that you're kind of like being engaged by with all the things that you would normally find in a film so i always found it really interesting to explore that and talk about that and uh that's sort of how the channel came about sorry that was incredibly (laughs) long-winded No, no, I think that was good. One of the videos that you you have on your channel, you kind of mention about how games and tech now are inseparable and kind of that definition that you give about how video games really kind of encapsulate these kind of different narrative methods in one particular medium uh, really speaks to that, I think. Heck yeah, man. I mean, even with what you see in, in technology, you know, sort of speaking about that inseparability Lots of, of tech now, particularly if we're talking about, you know, web tech, seems to be around some level of gamification. I think that's really sort of sprung up in the past few years where you've got, you know, badges and you've got, you know, progress meters and things like that that sort of make the, the user experience more of a game for the user as opposed to, I'm not saying it wasn't like that before, but I feel like it's definitely more explicit now. That's very true. Yeah. You see that in so many different apps. It's been like a big conversation in the community about that. Like, is it exploitive or is it is it valuable? Is it just how like people tick? It's, it's very cool. There's obviously a lot of layers to it. Well, I think for our generation, it's probably, I think, maybe bordering a little bit on, you know, maybe nostalgia muscle memory in a way. I mean, if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s, you pretty much were were ruled by Nintendo or Sega or or something like that. And so bringing those kind of familiar elements back into, you know, kind of our current world in different ways, it, it just makes it an easier experience, maybe. Yeah, I definitely Maybe that's so. one way to look at it. So you, you spoke about college. Where did you go to college at? Uh, I went to the college in New Jersey. It's this small college by Trenton. It's kind of in its own town. It, man, it used to be Trenton State University, but like they like push the borders out. I don't know why. There's a whole political thing around that. But nonetheless, yeah, it's in Central Jersey, about 30 minutes from Philadelphia, which is kind of why I ended up in Philly afterwards. You just end up going to the nearest city. and Yeah. Did you major in design? Yeah. I was one track, completely boring, graphic design, whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Knew exactly what I wanted to do. Wasn't going to mess around with it. (laughs) Do you feel like it kind of prepared you once you got out there and started working? That is a big conversation, man. I have that a lot with my friends about like, was it worth it? I think that it was, if anything, to just have that playground. Mm -hmm. I will say that when I actually got out into the world and like 
even just during my internship, technically, like team wise, I learned exponentially more just being in my internship than any classroom. However, I valued being able to have those class critiques. I valued the assignments that we had that rooted us in like sort of like the brick and mortar world of of print des- print design and and you know the digital stuff as well. I think it was nice to make to full circle make the mistakes that I did uh, and uh, and talk it over with other people and you know uh, me and my classmates. It, it felt very much like beggars telling other beggars where the bread was in a kind of way. And I guess I I, I liked that. I liked that camaraderie. Well, piggybacking off of that, what is something that you know now that you've never learned in school? Like what's something important about, let's say about being a designer, about the design process? I think the biggest thing is uh, learning compassion for the other people that you're working with. Not necessarily people on your fellow team, not necessarily the people on the same team as you, like the creative team, but also understanding the kinds of responsibilities that the project managers have, the kinds of responsibilities that the quality assurance and dev team has. I think those are probably the most valuable pressure points to really be able to read for any designer. And that's sort of been like a great litmus test for me whenever like a new designer kind of comes around, like are they really like sort of reading the room on that? Because there has to be humility when you're preparing your production files to pass off to devs, for example, right? Or I think that there should be a little bit of an intimate understanding of like the kind of pressure that your project manager is under for like forecasting hours and things like that and making sure that you can like communicate with them in the best way possible. I think when any when everybody understands their job and also understands a little bit of the job of the person in front and behind them, not necessarily front and behind meaning like priority, just front and behind like in the sort of like con- conveyor belt of whatever, even if it's agile, like man, projects go so smooth. They just do. Like when project managers can speak a little bit of UX, you know, on your behalf, like that can be really valuable because that can save you a round of revisions if they have a really nice conversational relationship with a client, you know? And then on that same end, like, like if I can do what I need to do and sort of organize things in a way that I can stay within the hours that are, that are forecasted, if I can't, it's fine, right? You just, you make it work, you know what I mean? Like, or I think probably a better example is just like, if I can understand how the dev team is going to be handling my files and like make sure that my stuff is organized, like, rookie example like just my layers are labeled <laughs> you know like <laughs> these kinds of things i think are incredibly valuable and contribute to a, a very healthy company so i think the biggest thing i learned is that and that's just something like in school you're just not going to learn because it's just you with other artists who are talking about artist problems and they're talking about clients from hell not understanding that sometimes it's designers from hell. Like, and when you're in that echo chamber, you're really just thinking about yourself. Not always, but like there's so Mm -hmm. much temptation. There's a higher propensity to think about yourself. And the most valuable thing has sort of been like understanding for me has been understanding where other people are coming from. It's interesting. You mentioned that kind of like clients from hell kind of scenario. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the blog clients from hell. Oh yeah. And like when I first started out as a designer, I would, you know, read that and, you know, ha ha ha, that's very funny because I would, you know, end up kind of going through some of those same experiences. But the more that I've worked with clients and even as I've, I've started, you know, teaching design as well, like you said, you realize it's not necessarily all about the client. Sometimes it's the designer, like the designer may go into it with 
this level of attitude or superiority. And granted, the, the designer is probably the expert in that case with what they do, but the client is the expert on their business. So you may go into it as a designer with, you know, maybe these very lofty goals of, of what should be done and what could be done. And you and the client just aren't kind of seeing eye to eye, like you're not finding that common ground. So sometimes you have to, you have to meet the client where they are in order to get them to understand what the concept is that you're trying to kind of put forward. And I don't know if that's something that's really taught in schools. I think that's more just kind of an experience thing. Yeah. No, definitely. I agree with that. Like it can be right. Like the best, I guess the best preparation you can get that I don't necessarily feel like was explicitly put out there is that I think it would be healthy to alongside like encouraging how exciting it is to like go out there and be creative and get paid to make creative things to also Mm -hmm. say like, don't see yourself as a janitor, but we're there to serve in a kind of way. And when I say serve, like we're there to sort of have a bit of a servant's heart in what we're doing. And, you know, there are going to be clients who don't speak design lingo or they're going to be clients. They're just going to be clients that say jazz it up. You're going to be yeah. clients that say spruce it up and you're going to have to figure out what that means because sometimes mm-hmm. they're not trying to undermine what you do and they're not trying to be ignorant. They're just not in that world. And we have yeah. to be able to kind of meet them halfway. At least that's how I feel. No, no, I know what you mean. I have a client who the 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 design, the only kind of design direction I will get from her is that it needs to be sexy. <laughs> and you can make it sexy. And that is such I mean, it's such a I mean, it's like super loaded, right? Oh, like what man. does that necessarily mean? That's great. But but I've worked with her long enough where I know exactly what, what that, that means. means. <laughs> right? But that but that but knowing that comes from sort of fostering that relationship and kind of taking that time out to understand and not just saying that the the client has to speak to you in the same language that you're speaking to them. Yeah. Right. It's, it's empathy. It's having that empathy to kind of know where they're coming from with Definitely. Cause trust me, the first few times she said it, I'm like, what? Like make us what? But now I get it. Now she says it like, you know, like, you know, Maurice, this needs to be, you know, just a little bit sexier. I'm like, got it. I totally get what you mean. I know exactly what she means and I'll make it quote unquote sexier and she loves it she knows exactly when she says that i don't have to like go back and forth with her about it i totally land with you on that (laughs) so walk me through a typical day like where are you working now what what kind of work are you doing if if you're at, at liberty to speak about that yeah sure so right now i'm working at a creative agency called it's called now it's called indava so it was called nickel fish and that's where i worked for like four years we were recently acquired. So at that point in time, we were like a team of 30, 40. Uh, when I had first signed on, we were, I mean, I guess there was a bit, a bit over a dozen of us, I want to say. And we were kind of in like the second level of this corner of this antique shop in this sort of like barn house, you know, this sort of like redone like barn house. And then we had sort of grown and now we occupy sort of two houses that are next to each other. And we kind of kept the whole house feel just so it's like really comfortable and things like that. And it's an actual house? Yeah, yeah. It's an actual house. It's actually a historical house. It's like over a century old. The Underground Railroad is underneath our houses. Like there, wow. are, there are like secret like doorways down there and it's insane. <laughs> wow. Like I've been down there. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so wild that, wow. th- 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 that this exists here. Um, yeah. So, oh my gosh. And so 
as far as that goes, it's like a really cool vibe and it, it's still like it, it still feels very homey. A couple of months ago, we were acquired by this international company called Indava that over here, no one knows what it is. No one knows what the heck Indava is. But whenever I mention it to my UK friends, they're like, oh, yeah, Indava, like because they're, they're they're sort of like a, they do a lot of web dev and a lot of app dev stuff, but purely on the development side, they don't do any of the pretty. So I guess there isn't too much of recognition with that. One of the reasons why the acquisition was really cool for us was because we're the only ones really kind of pioneering the creative stuff. And there's a lot of great things that come with an acquisition like that. Uh, it's very unique because I guess in a lot of ways, like if you're not constantly like fighting or competing for attention because it's just sort of like, hey, you guys lead us on like all the visual stuff. So that's sort of been like an interesting, like really cool, like transitional process for for myself and for the team. But yeah, other than that, other than like the banner and the style guides, like nothing has really like changed except for we have like a uh, a much bigger fleet of devs. And then it's still like to kind of answer your question, like it's still an atmosphere of like 30, 40 people in these two houses making stuff. You know, we have a product team as well. Uh, so in a typical day, it's just kind of getting up, going there and um either working on since i was there from the beginning like most people who kind of like work at like startupy like places you end up wearing a lot of hats right and i've never really wanted to let go of any of them or like be like super duper focused because the variety is nice so my formal title is senior ux designer however i'll also do creative and uh i'll also do videography so full-time filmmaker as well and that's just one of those things where it's all commercial work where like uh, you're working on someone's website or someone's app and maybe they have tutorial videos or maybe they need like an introduction video or something like that or a synopsis video. Like I would be the guy to do that. And then, you know, with that comes like motion and animation. And that's something that, that I would uh, typically do as well. So with all of this that you're doing with Indaba, how do you find the time to then kind of meticulously put together these videos and things for your YouTube channel? Because it looks like just from the outside looking in that so much goes into kind of making it this very finished, well-produced, polished product that you put out. We have good management. So because of that, <laughs> things get done in a, for the most part in a timely manner. And because of that, I get to go home <laughs> and work okay. on stuff. Okay. And it's, it's an encouraged thing, which is really cool. You know what I mean? Is that something I have to like sneak around doing? Yeah. We, we have really good management. So because of that, I get to like go home at five and get work done. So pretty much evenings and weekends are mine to work on stuff. It's been great having that freedom to be able to uh, to do that. So as a designer, how do you think that you can improve? I know kind of what you said with Indaba is that they have sort of really good management and that leaves you a lot of time, you know, weekends and nights to do what you need to do. So with you having this kind of extra time to do everything on, you know, kind of nights and weekends and things like that. What kind of keeps you motivated and inspired? I mean, because I've looked at some of the videos and I really like the kind of connections that you make between gaming and culture or gaming and these kind of loftier ideas. What gets you in that mind space? Honestly, my other like creative friends inspire me a great deal. As I started making things, a lot of the inspiration was just like, I don't know, there'd be like different talks Either it's a GDC talk or talks online from creators that I like. Like they'll sort of like get like my thoughts kind of going on things. But mm -hmm. really a lot of other – a lot of my my creative friends like inspire me a lot. A lot of my other YouTube friends or friends that don't do YouTube or game stuff at all 
I guess there's no like absolute science behind inspiration. Like different things at different times will sort of like get me going. I guess like noticing different connections between different things at random moments. Like maybe I'll finish watching a movie or something like that. But lately I'd say just my other friends on the internet, like it's crazy how like, you know, the internet seems like this really huge place and everyone seems like so spread out and like they're all over the world and no one knows each other. And then you start making something and contributing to the conversation and then you start meeting people through conventions, people nearby, people at different like collaborative spaces. And you realize that everyone knows each other and actually everything is really, really small. And through that, I mean, through Skype, through Twitter, through all these different sort of like social mediums, like I've just been able to meet and talk with different people and, you know, get proven wrong and get corrected and, you know, and, and also just sort of like wrestle with different ideas. And I think through that, different ideas will just come up like at random that, that seem like really cool or really interesting. Like I, for example, if that sounds like super vague, for example, so I was at my friend Austin's house. Uh, his, his YouTube name is Peanut Butter Gamer. Amazing guy, incredibly humble guy, super nice guy who just like just wants to make really cool work. So he got a new place in Seattle and I was up in Seattle. I was up in Portland visiting a friend. So we decided we we're going to go over to his place to have a game night because it's a couple of hours away. And um, while I was there, I was talking with two friends from online. They sarcastically brought up. I think we were playing some kind of like board game that involved like reaching the end of a conversation and they were like, Oh, let's have a conversation about racial reconciliation in America sarcastically because there what? is no end to the conversation. And like okay. <laughs> <laughs> they brought that up. So then, and then we started talking about it cause they're both mixed. So Todd, he's black and German. And then Kara, I think Kara's black and German as well. And then for me, I'm West Indian, Panamanian and Chinese. So like we were all kind of having a conversation about like what the multiracial or biracial lens on racial reconciliation is. Cause from my perspective, it's a very like small voice or a voice that's kind of perceived a little bit less interesting. And like out of nowhere, like the end of our conversation, we were like, we should just do a round table. Like we should just shoot that, you know? And like that just came out of just like a random conversation with other people who make stuff. And it was easy and it's going to be easy to do because we all have the tools and we all know how to talk. You know what I mean? And um, there are obviously lighter <laughs> creative ideas that come out of things like that. But th that comes to mind because it was just a couple of weeks ago, like. Anything wow. can sort of come out of anything, I suppose. So you say that, that you all shouted. So it's like a video or is it a podcast? Oh, we, I'll be interested we didn't, in hearing we, that conversation. Yeah, we didn't we didn't do it yet. I'm sort of like leading that. So we're probably going to do it like next week or something like that. I'm really excited because we never – we didn't really go there. It's one of those things that's like, man, we can go there tonight, but I think we should just save it for like <laughs> – That would be an interesting conversation to hear. So, so one thing that I, I you know kind of want to touch on since we – since we have sort of brought race up a little bit here. <laughs> and, and no, no, no. This is not in any sort of like super inflammatory way or anything like that. But I don't know. You may you may see where I'm going with this here. So a lot of the work that you're doing in YouTube in this particular space where you're talking about gaming and culture in this is very Anglo. It's very white. You're one of kind of the few voices of color that I see that really can talk about this stuff in a very thoughtful way that's not ranty or bordering on stereotype. There's like you, there's Jamin Warren from a PBS oh, game awesome show, dude. for example. <laughs> I, I guess what have your experiences kind of been in this space being a person of color? Have you gotten any kind of backlash from it or, or anything like that? I don't think so. I don't think it's, yeah. yeah. I did an AMA a while ago where someone really thoughtfully and carefully like sort of asked like, 
they, they kind of like calmly like asked like if if by any means I felt slighted or maybe even set apart in a way where I feel like the way I'm being received or the analytics tied to my channel or the kind of conversations that come out of the things that I talk about are in any way tied to my cultural background. And I've never explicitly felt that way. I've never felt Mm -hmm. any particular discomfort or that I've been kind of like approached in a different way. I don't think that what I've been working on would, would have the privilege of being as visible as it is if I didn't have like the support and, uh, and the encouragement both publicly and also privately from my friends who don't come from a marginalized background. I think it's a mix of both, honestly, like what, like one, one dude who's done a lot for me, Gerard Kalia, like, you know, he comes from a marginalized background and, and I mean, and then I have friends who don't like, uh, like Shane Gill or John Jafari. I don't want to start naming names. I don't want to make anyone feel like left out, but like that nonetheless, like it's been a mixed bag of people who have like been with me through this like walk up to now and it's mm-hmm. still going. And, uh, with the exception of like a small handful of YouTube comments that are like, you dumb N word, like really, really that that's about it, honestly. And I, I don't even get comments like that too much. And then also I don't lend any weight to asinine YouTube comments because that is the gutter of the internet. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also your channel. You can moderate it how you want to. Yeah. That is kind of the way that I, I was, I was thinking about it actually. I mean, I didn't see that AMA that you were, were mentioning, but that's kind of what I meant for you being in the space where it is, you know, mostly white men. Do you feel like it's been, you know, maybe different for you or not harder because I can't say, oh, well, what's it like being a white guy? Because you don't know that. But right. <laughs> like, just how is it like how has your experience in general been? And from what you're saying, it sounds like it's been largely positive. Yeah, It's been cool. And I think that's the benefit of. I think that's the large benefit of being on a completely democratized, independent platform on the internet. Like anyone with a Google account can put stuff out there and start talking with people. It's cool that you mentioned Jamin. So I, I met Jamin a few months ago in his studio, and we were we were having a beer on the roof of his like awesome office in a. I don't know if you've ever been to the. It's like a pencil factory kind of area in Brooklyn. There's a, there's a more formal name for it, but I forgot it. Uh, Dumbo. No, 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 not not, not Dumbo. Fort Greene? No, Greenpoint. I can't remember. Oh gosh, it sounds like a horrible like local, <laughs> horrible local. I know what it is, guys. You live in New cut York. This you out. Know just this. cut this out. I know what it is, but right now it has completely escaped me. So we're just gonna move on. Okay. Just cut right. that. Yeah. So yeah, I uh, <laughs> just I'm gonna rewind. <laughs> Jamie and I we talked on the roof of his awesome building uh, above uh, on a his office for Kill Screen, the website that he sort of runs in the quarterly in Brooklyn. We got a chance to talk a little bit about that because I know for him, he is, ah, man, I don't want to get it wrong. I believe he's half African-American, half uh, um, Mexican. Mexican. Yeah. He was talking about how like, you know, sometimes he wonders like with sort of like the success or the growth of his channel and like his website, if, you know, part of what sort of plays into that is the fact that he doesn't look like a nerd. Like he doesn't look like a prototypical person who's into games. You know what I mean? Like he's not like a white dude with beard he and glasses, does. right? To me, he well, does. Wearing, to me, he does. <laughs> he's wearing glasses. <laughs> to on me, he channel, does. Yeah. I do. I feel that way. You know, but 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 I guess I guess for him, like he was kind of taking it a step further. Like, you know, I'm I'm not sort of like this pale guy with a big beard and glasses. Like, does that play into like people's like comfort or first impressions or like capacity to latch onto the authenticity of opinion around like? 
this sort of like niche culture. And I don't really have an answer. When he brought that up, like by no means would I take away from where he lands with that or his thoughts on that at all. I was able to, in some capacity, kind of like resonate with the the question he was bringing up or where he was coming from with the question. It's something I had never really considered, honestly. For the most part, I feel like, I think if anything, I can say that I've never, my authenticity or whatever that would mean has never been called into question ever. Like my capacity to talk about games or art or culture has never been explicitly called into question. So because of that, I don't think so. I think the people who probably have to worry about that more are probably like women. Like women are constantly questioned like, do you know about that? Like how can oh, don't tell me about gaming, mechanics? Yeah. Like the, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a tragedy, right? Like um so so I don't know if that's a No, that that's interesting to that he sort of thought about that from his standpoint because Jamin is a is a journalist. Right. So I would I would think above anything else the fact that he's written stuff for, you know, like the Wall Street Journal and et cetera kind of gives him credence to be able to talk about this in just a, an analytical way. Definitely. Also, this is kind of a, a fun fact for people that are listening. So first of all, I respect the hell out of what he does. Like I totally He's respect tremendous. what he does. I don't know how he, he does so many things. <laughs> he wrote, this had to have been maybe about seven or eight years ago, but he was commissioned to write some, uh, some designer profiles for AIGA for their design journeys oh, cool. uh, exhibits. And I mean, well, now it's the Design Journeys Archive, although it has recently been kind of revamped and, and it's it's back up and running. But I read some of his like early work when I was like looking for other designers of color. OK, that's cool. Like he like he wrote some biographies on some people and I'm like, oh, it's, you know, Jamie Warren, like it's the same guy. So I, I totally respect what he does and the work that he's doing. I love his show, PBS Game Show. But it's that's interesting that he kind of thought about it in that way or, or he he's he was thinking about how his i guess his race or anything might have played into that in terms of him being able to talk about the work that he does because i wouldn't even i honestly would not even look at it that way i'm like you're an accomplished journalist you should be able to write about whatever you have the capacity to write about yeah definitely so that's hmm, that's interesting so here's here's a question this might be kind of a big lofty question since we're kind of talking about you know this this level of of uh of introspection, but what is the biggest compromise that you've had to make in your career to have the success that you have now? Is it weird that I don't feel like <laughs> I've had to sacrifice much? I mean, I guess time, like, I, you know, time, time is a big thing for, so this year, a big thing for me has been, I need to do whatever I can to invest into relationships that I find valuable. I have some amazing friends. Like I, I really honestly do feel like I don't deserve the set of amazing friends that I do. I have amazing friends locally. I have amazing friends like on in other cities, in other countries. And like I think for me, like especially when you're when you're working on stuff on the internet, and like there are so many different places that you can be inspired and have conversations with people that lead to like new ideas and stuff like that. There's a lot of temptation to be as involved as possible and at as many places at the same time mm-hmm. as possible. And it's very easy to romanticize that in a way that makes it feel like it's actually healthy for you to be that spread out all the time. For myself, in my walk, I haven't landed in a place where I feel like that's true. I think that it is important to have seasons where you are doing that and you are paying attention to what's going on around you. And sometimes you do get stretched then because you do. You're working. Like, you know what I mean? But I think that it is valuable to kind of recognize the, uh, I was this old mentor who like, 
had like the 12, the five, the three and the one, which is like, I think he was using like Jesus's disciples, like from the Bible, like he had the 12 and then he had five that he confided. And then of the five, he had three. And then of the three, he had like one really close person. And I think in that same way, like sort of like to, to use, to use sort of like that illustration and like, in my life, I feel like of my friends, I have a 12, a five, a three and a one. And like in there, like I, I really, I think investing in that and having people who always have the jurisdiction to call you out, like even if it's foul, I think that that's really good for my personal growth and then also for my vulnerability overall. And I think a consequence from that is just really good teamwork and better productivity and a healthier outlook. And obviously there's other things as well. Solitude's important. You know what I mean? Like all these, there, there are a lot of different disciplines that I think are really important, but I think last year I was so scatterbrained and there were a lot of really valuable relationships I left by the wayside, just sort of in the dark for a while and I would be in and out and unreachable. Uh, I've been working on trying to be more reachable, even though I was incredibly unreachable to like organize this podcast. <laughs> like I've been no, trying weren't. to be better. No, you weren't. <laughs> Don't. Okay. So I, would love, I would love to be able to be like, oh, thing, reply, hey, yes. <laughs> Go. Move I, on I, wish it were, I, I wish it were that simple for everyone that I tried to book. For people that are listening, Satchel is completely overblowing this. I just want to say that. Like, it, it, it was not that hard to get in touch with you. <laughs> well, it makes me feel a little better. Nonetheless, I. So, the biggest sacrifice, I think, is just like really, really walking with people whose company and opinions and lives, most importantly, I value and being involved in that so that. If there's interruptions and if something happens and I have to leave, like I can just leave. Like I like last year I made some amazing friendships with like folks in Boston and like Boston's like it's close, but really not <laughs> like it's it's five hours from here. But it's like a it's like a nineteen dollar bus ride. Like it's reachable. Like you can drive there. Like I would love to be in a place where like I value the friendships there. And if something happens to to, to one of my friends up there, like I can just go. Like, I don't have to think about, oh, well, I got to upload this thing. Like, I can be like, like, I can say, no, in the grand scope of life, like, this life stuff is objectively more important right now. Yeah. So it sounds like the compromise has been time slash visibility for stronger interpersonal relationships. Yeah. No, that's good. I like that. I like that. That's good. So speaking of mentors, since you kind of, you know, brought it up just now, have you had any other mentors that have really helped you out along the way? So all of my mentors, no one's going to know who they are because they're just people. I mean, I could bring up their names because I would love to because they're awesome. <laughs> like my, I had a high school teacher who was just like super interested in being like involved in people's lives in and outside of school, which sounds really creepy and scary. And that's because it is at face value. But he was actually incredibly loving and like really gave a damn and was not like a pedophile or something. His name is Brian Hall and he was the man and walked with me all throughout high school and like shared with me wisdom that I go back to like to this day. In college, there's this dude named Dale Young who is like, he was like an older dude as well who was just like a part of like the campus staff who was also a tremendous mentor. Post-college, this guy named Donnie Cho was like, my man, like he was a, and, and just, and he was incredibly helpful for me in the, in the sort of beginning of my career, especially just talking about work-life balance. Cause I got to get, I got to glean a lot from him. He was out in the world, like working as a consultant at a fortune 500 company and like, just like 
constantly like sharing things as he's learning it. And like for, for him, like the way that he saw mentorship, I was always in like the rhythm of like a formal mentorship. And for him, his outlook was always, you can look to me, not because I'm just older than you, because there's a lot of old fools in the world, but because I've been around longer, I've had an opportunity to make exponentially more mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it's through that that I feel like I can speak into your life that might be valuable and I'm not going to do it perfectly and you can't 100% depend on me. Don't because I will fail you. But to the extent, to the best extent that I can be intentional about this, I will. And that's been an amazing thing. And then outside of that, like nowadays, I, I guess I'm kind of at an age where, and I talked about this earlier, I'm kind of at an age where I don't have a formal mentor anymore. I'm, I guess I'm just sort of like an adult, like I'm just in life and like I have peers and some of the things they say are valuable and some of the things they say are really not. And I kind of just use the discernment I've kind of learned from from them and from life, I guess. Are you satisfied creatively with, with the work that you're doing? Yes. Good. That was a good short answer. I like that. What advice would you give to somebody that's kind of just starting out? And, and I want to say with design, but I would say just with with being able to tell their story. Because a lot of what you do through your... Um, your YouTube channel is about kind of telling stories or, or getting a point across in a different medium than just say explicit like graphic design, web design, etc. I would say position yourself in places where you can be. I mean, though the word inspired is sort of like overused, like position yourself in places where you can be inspired and try new creative things, like whether it's a technique you really like to get specific to because I don't, I, there's no, no point in being general. Like, if it's design or if it's video or if it's anything creative, you have people that you like. You have people that are doing things that like inspired you to want to do it. Find the stuff they're doing. Try to do it the way that they do it and like find your voice in that. But like be diligent about like output. And like I think to that extent what's incredibly healthy about like paying attention to like the scene around the things that you enjoy is that you can glean tips and techniques, technical stuff, equipment that's being used, how it's being used, ways to save money on the equipment you're using if it's videography. I think letting it stop there is really cool. There's this artist that I really enjoy, um, and one thing he's doing with his son, because he's kind of his son's kind of at the age where he's creating things and he's cognizant and he's reacting to the world around him. I mean, he also wants a social network because he's 13. And he was like, you can have have a social network, make an account on Facebook or something. And like, and he was like, his dad essentially said, you can do that, but you are not allowed. You're only allowed to share things that you made. Like hmm. you are not allowed to just like propagate stuff like, or like, Hey, look at this. Like you have to make stuff. Now I'm not saying that's like the only way to grow, but I have a, I have a great amount of respect for that level of restraint. Whether you believe in like keeping everything to yourself and then sort of like when you feel seasoned enough, like putting stuff out there or you believe like, hey, the Internet's a great place for there to be a sandbox on a playground and just like output stuff, you know, wherever you land, like that's totally cool. But I think what can be really distracting is getting caught up in the world of like talking about the thing you're about to do or like talking about the ideas that the things that you're doing instead of just doing them and let those sort of speak to where you actually land with things, you know, and that I guess what sort of like. It's fueling me saying that is the world of design where like I guess I was never super into like and just by chance. I don't I by no means I hope I hope I don't come off as arrogant. I don't mean to sound arrogant at all. It's just like I was never really like in the design scene in that kind of way. There were like designers that I liked 
and I fall into the point of like seeing the challenging things they do and like trying to like top that for myself. I don't mean top that like to quantify like art, but like top that to like, oh, that seems challenging. What if I did this? Like this. this yeah, like, like to stretch yourself. Yeah. I think that just being focused on your work is so great rather than because there are a lot of people and I'm sure I'm sure you know a couple who have created careers out of just talking about design and the state of design. But they're not necessarily very impressive designers at all. Or maybe they just don't even design. <laughs> I know people that have made careers out of just talking about talking. Right. Exactly. And, and haven't really built like like they haven't really built anything. Right. I know exactly what you yeah. mean. Yeah. And I guess for me, I can't say what's more valuable than the other objectively. But for me, the guy who's like making stuff and focusing on on making it and and how he's doing it. Um, and obviously, you know, talking about it every once in a while, like I think that that's such a great timeline for a creative person who feels like, you know, they're creating stuff that they're satisfied with and they're, they're I don't know. Yeah. So that, that's kind of how I feel. It's always hard talking about this because there's so many different stories. But that's sort of yeah. what's kind of been true for me right now. What are you most excited about at the moment? I just bought an Ollie Moss print. <laughs> I'm pretty excited for it to arrive. <laughs> you know Ollie Moss, What's dude? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, I loved his stuff like when I – like senior year of college, when I first graduated college. And like he just uh, – so a game just came out that he did that he did all the art for, that he did the art direction for called firewatch it's an independent game it's like a four-hour play i've always loved his style it's always been a big inspiration for me i've never done anything that like reflects that like i've never done like an homage but it's just one of those people it's like i don't do what you do but man what you do and the way that you do it is so good you know mm -hmm. he uh, he did these limited edition prints for it so i was totally like hounding the internet trying to find it because it's like a limited run so i'm excited for that I don't, does that i don't know if that's what you're what you meant when you said it. no it can be it's <laughs> hey, it's it's whatever is it has you excited at the moment yeah trust me i've asked people that question before and they've been like well i'm having dinner after this yeah i'm pretty so super hungry food, yeah 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 I, I totally understand yeah. that so i'm excited to like get it find a really nice i want to find like man i'm like super into reclaimed wood right now i was just mm -hmm. in portland and everything is reclaimed wood like Everything is made out of reclaimed wood. And it just looks so good and so like honest and like it has like classic Americana aesthetic that like I super dig. So like I just want to like get that and like get it in a nice reclaimed wood frame and just like I got this big white wall that's like begging for something to like hang from it. And I just want to like do that and feel good about nice. it. <laughs> what are the best things that you owe your parents? Everything. I love my parents. My parents like I feel super duper lucky. Like, cause like my parents were always super supportive not only that they were super supportive so like they were super supportive but they weren't hippies my parents struck a balance in their personalities and the way that they raised myself and my sister that i don't see in other places i don't think and like i hope to be that way like i don't know like i feel like it's a privilege that i can be like oh yeah if i'm a parent i just want to do what my parents did like if i could just do it verbatim that'd be fine <laughs> But like I don't know I don't know if there's too much that I'd change about it. I think like so like they they were always like whatever you want to do like you should probably do that. But like just make sure you're damn good at it and like you can make money off of it because we came to this country so that you can like take care of yourself eventually. <laughs> and uh, like when I did design stuff like or like art stuff like and I mean it makes sense like my dad's a fashion designer and then my mother 
so she started working at she's so my my mother and father they met in Brooklyn at the time like my dad started as a tailor and then he moved to the city to start a store selling men's fashion clothes and then he quickly realized that women's fashion does better than men's fashion surprise surprise he met my mother at Studio 54 and at the time my mother was a model but she was also working in finance on Wall Street and they um got together and then like she would model for his stuff and things like that and then they were both then they both dabbled with fashion and started and started a store together in Brooklyn and they had my sister and they had me and like there's always sort of been like that interesting balance of like encouragement of creativity it's it was really hard for me to like pinpoint it and still it's hard for me to pinpoint it but I guess in some way like my dad being involved in design definitely trickled down to me in some way if anything Uh just the fact that like it was a normal thing that was always okay and then like my mother's always been like very practical very like numbers oriented very like yeah but like where's the you know where's the evidence (laughs) or like where's the and I think that like that yin and yang was super pivotal and like even today like they're super cool and they're super chill and we can talk about anything like we just easter weekend just happened and like we're totally talking about i don't know i guess i just feel like there's sort of like a mutual respect in a kind of way and we can kind of share anything Mm -hmm. so it's cool and there are people that i feel like i can go to for like advice which i know is you know kind of something not not everyone can say like they're not like annoying or like they don't make me want to like roll my eyes or anything (laughs) (laughs) well i think you know people feel that way about their parents like when they're younger like when you're in your teens and early 20s it feels that way but the older you get you start to realize their perspective because they were probably your age now when they had you and so it's it's this sort of weird kind of parallax almost where you're like i'm kind of barely taking care of myself and i don't see how you had a family right and and we're you know kind of doing all these things so yeah, it is. It totally is. <laughs> that's super real. And that's what's been helpful. I think that's what's been helpful about adulthood. Like they've been super transparent about it. They're just like, man, like just yesterday, my mother was just like, man, there's no book for this, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, that's real. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I just had my birthday last week. It was it was sort of my – it was a milestone birthday. I turned 35. And Happy birthday, man. Thanks, man. And my mom, my mom had me when she was, God, I want to say like 28 or 29 probably. Okay. I could not imagine like her having me at like 28, 29 to 35. That's seven years. I've had my business now for seven years. (laughs) I can't imagine like I guess in a way my business is my child in that way. (laughs) But like it's, it's this weird. It's, you know, and I guess that's why she kind of always is somewhat pushing on me to get a job because it's like, you know, when I was your age, you know, I had, you know, two kids that was working and, you know, yeah. doing all this stuff. And I was like, I can't, I can't even imagine. So it's like you get, you gain a new respect yeah. for your parents, the older you, cause you realize kind of what they had to go through with even less than what you have now. Yeah, definitely. If you weren't doing what you were doing now, you know, with design and with, with YouTube videos and everything, what would you be doing? I have no idea, but if I had to guess, like if I just wasn't doing art at all. Well, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, we'll say that. Not art, not art I mean, specifically, but just. So I guess it would have to be a situation. I'm not trying to nitpick. I promise. <laughs> like, because <laughs> like, like I, I, I actually, I actually want to think through this. That's an interesting question. I mean, I'm doing everything I want to do. So if I weren't, so it, essentially, if I were in a situation where I was forced to not do what I absolutely wanted to do, 
when I was a kid, I wanted to be a mailman. Because <laughs> I'd be a mailman. Your mailman. And that's what I wanted to be because I was like, oh, man, that's so cool. He just meets all these people. I mean, obviously, I was a child. So, like, <laughs> you realize mailman. Well, yeah, don't yeah, any- that's, mailman yeah, that's don't true. Anybody. <laughs> I think right. so. I wanted to be a I wanted to be a firefighter when I was younger. So I, I totally get that. Now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and then also you don't think about, like, socioeconomic brackets or anything like that. But right. So I don't know if I wasn't I guess I would uh, if I couldn't be a designer or a filmmaker and couldn't work with that, I guess I'd be a writer. I, I do music. I do music as a as like a hobby now. So I guess I would just do music and write, probably. Okay. Yeah. Well, music's not a bad fallback. It's not bad. Yeah. So I I know that of course you talk a lot about games. I would be remiss if I did not ask you about gaming. You know, in some kind of capacity. Sure. What consoles are you really like gravitating towards these days? Right now, I don't like any of them. They're all just really? like they're all just computers. They're just like proprietary computers <laughs> that do less things than a computer. I guess I've sort of the romance with consoles and like the kind of team alliance is kind of lost on me, especially because mm-hmm. like like a lot of game developers are like struggling and they're just putting it on everything because like they're putting their games on everything because it's like yeah we need people to play it. <laughs> Um, yeah. I have a PS4 because it has the best hardware and uh, the games that I like are on it and it has the best deals for like indie games and like older games and stuff. It has a big library. So, I mean, I guess my affinity's there. It's just easy. I went through the whole seasons of building my – I've been building a PC since I was like in high school and uh, I sold like my like supercomputer last year that I spent way too much money on because it was one of those things where like, it was like, all right, I have like a, I have like a job now. Like every computer part I fantasized about buying, I could just buy it. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. like I did that and I built it and I was like, man, I'm just, you're, you're troubleshooting like windows. Sorry, you use windows. I don't (laughs) look for what I was using. I'm I'm mostly platform agnostic, but yeah, go ahead. For what I was using, Windows is fundamentally broken, and I'm still troubleshooting, and I'm still finding drivers, and I'm still getting weird error messages. And it's like I'm so out of that because I'm just so used to like things just working. Working. And it's like, all right, I'm a a grown man. Like I have to – like we were talking earlier, I just have to focus on my work, and I can't focus on like I want to start my work. Oh, but here are these random things that I have to like scrounge yeah. around the internet for typing in strings of random numbers and letters for this like <laughs> hex file that I got to put it like I just Oh, Windows. I can't. Never change. Yeah, I know. I just can't <laughs> with that anymore. And then with the new Windows that's like a little bit better and has a better UI, but they're trying to steal all your information because they're crazy. Like I just <laughs> I'm not there. I, I didn't land there anymore. So I just sold it. I was like, I'm going to get console. It's easier. I want a game. Download game. Play game there right <laughs> you know uh well mac now is certainly much better for gaming than it used to be just in terms of uh that's true yeah. a- availability and i think also just being able to run games uh because i think you mentioned this in one of your videos like a lot of games before were on OpenGL, but now that that mac has metal a lot of the games that you're seeing are coming out are 1080p 60 frames per second like they look great yeah they run great on the hardware there's no lag or anything like that so yeah Macs are starting to become a lot better for gaming than, I mean, Windows, I feel like PCs have never been super great. You just kind of, you put up with what you could do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's always been some, some kind of issue, particularly if you're, if you're trying to play older games that are on CD-ROM and stuff, like you can forget it. It's just a mess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Definitely. I don't have a device in my house that reads optical discs. <laughs> really? No, not a single not a single oh. one. Because there's no because we're not even a Blu-ray player. We're like post that. Oh wait, wait, wait. No, I'm lying because the PS4 does that. But I download all my games. Like I don't know. I just don't. Okay. I don't. I haven't used the disc in like a couple of years, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're more advanced than I am. There, I still have a couple of, of uh, devices here that read stuff. So in terms of consoles, I've if I get a PS4, like right now, I have a PS3, a PS2, a PSP. I have a 360, and I have a Nintendo 3DS, the new one. Ah, oh, dude. And out of all of those, I like the Nintendo 3DS the best. Dude, heck yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be- because it's got the most. I feel the most variety of games. True. There's there's role playing games, there's puzzle games, there's fighting games, there's platformers. There's even some there's probably some first person shooters on there. I'm not a big first person shooter fan, and I feel like a lot of the games that are coming out on the newer consoles like PS4, Xbox One are first person shooters and I'm like, "Oh, that just yeah. discourages me." The only way I would get a PS4 now is only because Persona 5 is coming out oh, this summer. Oh snap. That's the only reason Dang. that I would get one. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also coming out on PS3, so it's like, yeah, do I want to? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, certainly that. What what types of games are your favorite? Right now, it's sort of been like those like Sunday afternoon games that are like four to eight hours exploratory narrative driven stuff. So and some of that aren't it's like, for example, like so for the shorter ones, like Gone Home, really great. Okay. Firewatch, really great. For the longer ones, like The Last of Us is really cool. I still have to finish that. I have not finished that. What are some other? I, st- I still like platformers, like Ori and the Blind Forest. Oh, just beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. It was beautiful. Even the story in that is really good. I like uh, that Dragon Cancer like wrecked me. Uh, that's another kind of like exploratory, like first person uh, game. Not a shooter or anything like that. But I guess I've sort of been like really enjoying the time I spend with like games that like you go and you kind of come out with with something. I mean, mm-hmm. there are games that are less like that. I started playing, so I was all about playing Animal Crossing, ironically, and then it totally got real on the 3DS. <laughs> can we talk about, no, no, seriously, can we talk about that? Dude, can we, have can you we read, really talk about that? oh my gosh, have you read, do, does the name Austin Walker ring a bell at all? Yeah. Have you read his piece on Animal Crossing? No, I haven't. Oh my gosh, his piece on Animal Crossing and skin color is crazy. It hits... So I'm linking that to you later. It's insane. Okay. When you read it, it'll wreck you. But sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Animal Crossing. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's interesting because with, with Animal Crossing, and for those that are listening uh, that don't know what Animal Crossing is, it's sort of this, it's a, it's a role-playing game, but it's a very slow game in that everything takes place in real time. So there's, there's some concept of quote-unquote grinding when you need to try to raise bells in order to like expand your house or buy furniture or things of that nature. But the more that you interact with the game in terms of talking with your neighbors and fulfilling your duties as mayor, which is what the newest version of animal crossing, animal crossing, new leaf, you sort of gain this sort of ersatz relationship with these, these digitized animals. And that's the other thing. You're a human. All your neighbors are animals. They're like (laughs) ducks and pigs and elephants and koalas and things. But you gain this like weird ersatz relationship with them, and it's like, it's it's a game. <laughs> Maybe this is just me. I don't know. But it's it it got to be where I would wake up 
in the morning and I would go and speak to my neighbors and I'd check the shops. And, that's what it does, You know, man. that's it. Or like on Sunday, I would make sure I got up before noon and, and make sure and see what the prices on turnips were because that's when the turnip lady came to town. You know, so it's, it's uh, yeah, I started to get a weird kind of like attachment to it. And I, it's funny because I just recently deleted my town because I'm like, I can't because it, it had been it had been several months since I had visited it. Mm. And I just upgraded to the new 3DS XL. Mm, very nice. Transferred everything over. But I lost some of my save data. And so my game was still intact. But I would I went into my town and like everyone had moved out. So it was all new people. <laughs> there were weeds over the town. And then people were like, oh, who are you? Like, wait a minute. What happened to, to my people? What happened to? To Melba, the koala, and and Frida, the the sheep, and you know they all moved away because I was busy doing stuff in real life. You know, it's yeah. I know people are gonna listen to this and think I am completely off my. Yeah, rocker, you're fine. You're fine. They, you know, <laughs> from an outsider's perspective, I was thinking from an outsider's lens for a second. I was like, the more you explain it, the deeper it gets into. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Animal Crossing, I, I certainly, it's, it's this weird kind of life sim that I, I did get attached to for a while. And I had to, it's like, okay, these are not real people. Let me just, just back off from it a little bit. But yeah, Animal Crossing is definitely, um, it's an interesting game. I think everyone should try it because there are certain aspects of the game that I find very relaxing, you know, like like the fishing and, and things like that. It, it is a very relaxing kind of game but you can get swept up into it yeah to the point where it's like okay there are people in real life i should go talk to i agree with that <laughs> <laughs> it's important what's cool is that yeah. you can just kind of get in and leave it and then happy home designer oh god don't even no no yeah i haven't went that far <laughs> yeah. i haven't gone that far i've I'm, noticed I'm, that's I'm, like the sewer for yeah i got <laughs> it's like okay when i get to that point where it's like i was like i have uh, maybe i should work on my own house like i haven't gotten that far yet but <laughs> But totally. No, the games now that I play the most are, let's see, on the 3DS, it's mostly puzzle games. Because, again, they're like, you can pick it up, you can do a few things, you can put it down. All of the Picross games, I am obsessed with. Mm. I've been obsessed with Picross since the 90s, probably. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It rings a bell, but I'm not. Uh, I mean- so Picross is also it's also called Nonagram. N-O-N-A-G-R-A-M. Basically, they're, and I think they're called Picrosses. It's a combination of picture and crosswords. So it's like you have this grid. Maybe it's 5 by 5, 10 by 10, 15 by 15. Sometimes it's 20 by 15. Okay. And there are these numbers that run along the, the uh, top and left sides that correlate to the blocks that you need to kind of chip out in order to make basically like a pixel portrait. And so there's some level of logic to it for figuring out which blocks you have to break and which ones you leave alone because there's a penalty. If you hit the first block wrong, they add two minutes to your time. If you hit the second block, it's four minutes, and every subsequent block is eight minutes. And the goal is to try to get the picture in less than an hour. Uh-huh. So if you start off at zero, and then it's like, oh, now it's two minutes, now it's you know, four minutes, now it's, you know, it adds on to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find them very relaxing. Heck yeah. It's that like, you can just, dude. yeah, you can like totally zone out to it. The music is really like kind of calm and serene. It's very weird. I am completely laying bare my odd video game. Nah, that's not odd. That's cool, man. 
That's cool. But but like there are six games. They're all like Picross. Or well, on on the Nintendo DS, they're Picross E, Picross E two, E three, E four, E five, E six. Because they just keep coming out with them, and I just keep buying them. And they've got you know little easy puzzles. They start off super easy, like a five by five grid, and then it just completely expands to like twenty by fifteen. I think the the latest one has an eighty by eighty grid. And so you're basically like chipping out like the Mona Lisa or something like that as you go through each of these little squares. It's yeah, I really like that. It's very relaxing. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Just to wrap things up, then, where can our audience find out more about you and your work online? My YouTube channel is youtube.com slash satchbags or satchbags goods. If you just want to remember like the name of the show, that's what the name of the show is called. I spend a decent amount of time on Twitter sharing different things that I might make, other interesting things that my friends make, talking about general things. Not not like a, not like a flood, not too much. At least I don't think, unless everyone's lying to me and I'm actually annoying them. And that's just uh, the my Twitter handle is Satchel Drakes. So that's Satchel like a bag, but with two L's and then Drakes like dragons. Instagram, I use Instagram to share like photography stuff, and my screen name okay. is Field Satchel, and that is with one L. It's the worst. I'm so bad at SEO thing. I work in marketing, but I don't even like <laughs> like with the URL sync thing. I just like lost it. But I guess everyone, every YouTuber has, so I don't feel so bad. Yeah, don't but worry yeah, about it's it. It's like I mean, I'm just a guy. I'm not a brand. It's, it's well, fine. you've got them all connected, right? Like yeah, yeah, they're all connected. Your, you find one, you'll if find you go to your another. Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Google so, yeah, Satchel Drakes. I think stuff will just show up, and you can just like go for it. <laughs> well, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, you know, it's a very trinidadian name i'll say that oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah it's a very trinidadian name so totally i can get that man it has been so good to have you on the show Dude, thanks for having it me really, this has it, been great. it really has yeah this has been for me it's been interesting because you're someone that i look up to just in terms of of like the i want to say like the work ethic but also just the the finished product just looks so damn good it's like I don't like I don't know how you like this is it's it's amazing, but I think it's also just the level of of care and precision that you put towards your work and that you make it about the work. Like it's not about you so much per se; it's about what the finished product is. Mm. And I really like that kind of approach to sort of what we we spoke about earlier and what you spoke about in that creativity vlog about not getting caught up in this kind of whirling eddy of trying to get inspired. And just getting out there and doing it, I think, with what you're doing, particularly with your YouTube videos, is just that. You're getting out there, you're talking about these these big topics, you're linking them to games, and it seems to be pretty well-received. So, yeah, it has been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thank you again so much for taking time out of your day. Thank you so much, man. That That's really encouraging to hear. And, I mean, likewise, I, I super appreciate the things that you're doing with your website, getting, like, really cool resources out there for people who are trying to grow. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Satchel Drakes and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Satchel and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. No one designs at scale quite like Facebook does, and that scale is only matched by their commitment to giving back to the design community. Learn more about designing at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash design. 
When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It not only helps us get new listeners, it also helps us move up the podcast rankings for design, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.